Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place the vets and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-Per-View, available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Player FM, and the host website, Podomatic. This is part one. Episodes are going to be in two parts for the foreseeable future. And the first subject of part one this week is Uber. This is in the Daily Mail. Uber was the worst performing IPO in US stock market history after its stock plunged 7.6% on the first day of trading, wiping more than $6 billion from the company's worth. An IPO was an initial public offering, or stock market launch, another way of saying it, which is a type of public offering in which shares of a company are sold to institutional investors and usually also retail investors. An IPO is underwritten by one or more investment banks who also arrange for the shares to be listed on one or more stock exchanges. The article says, Uber's IPO is being called the worst ever by at least one measure after the company's investors suffered higher dollar losses in the first day than in any other float in the US. Uber's stock plunged 7.6% on the first day of trading on Friday, wiping about $6.3 billion from the company's initial valuation of $82 billion at the $45 per share offering price. Other large companies have plunged more in percentage terms on the first day of trading. For instance, ZTO Express, whose share price dropped 15% on the first day of trading when it launched with a $14.3 billion valuation in 2016. But the sheer scale of Uber's valuation means that the raw dollar losses are the biggest ever, at least on paper. The investors that bought in at Uber's $45 offering price, logged a total of $618 million in paper losses Friday, noted IPO watcher Jay Ritter of the University of Florida in an interview with Fortune. He said it's the worst dollar loss for a US IPO going back through 1975, excluding foreign stock listing in the country via American depository shares. Many initial investors will likely hang onto their shares and may still turn a profit if the share price rises it should be noted in terms of the share price drop uber's ipa ranks as the ninth worst first day performer of all time according to deal logic only about a fifth of ipos have ended their first day of trading in the red in the last two years according to deal logic data uber's road to ipo was marred by several hurdles including increased regulation in several countries and fights with its drivers over wages Uber has also weathered controversies, including revelations of a culture of sexism and bullying at Uber and U.S. Department of Justice investigations. After a series of embarrassments, Kalanick was forced to resign in 2017 by a group of investors. Uber then hired Khosrow Shahi to lead the company. Uber has said it has the potential to grow not just in the cab hailing business, but also as a super app to provide logistics services such as grocery and food delivery, organizing freight transportation, and even financial services, much like Grab, its Southeast Asian counterpart. But market experts have struggled to find value in a company that has consistently posted losses and warned that it may never be profitable. The business is unprofitable. New entrants can enter the market. There is potential regulatory risk, and it is very price sensitive, said Robert Johnson, professor of finance at Hyder College business Crichton University in Omaha Nebraska said he added what is there to like about this opportunity well uber is another Silicon Valley venture and that's no surprise given the Silicon Valley mentality Silicon Valley is driving the transhuman agenda which I talk about in episodes 10 and 11 and in episode 19 I talk about the connection between Silicon Valley and the intelligence networks a sign that a company or venture is an agenda project is when a company loses money continually and the money necessary to keep it afloat is coming therefore from somewhere. Why would you invest in a company known for losing money 
and not making anywhere near enough of a profit because you know it's an agenda project and what the agenda is so you support it because you know eventually it will make profit because the agenda is it gains a monopoly as part of the wider agenda and there's a couple of articles here about uber's losses in the past this is on cnbc.com from february 2018 uber has just revealed its fourth quarter financial results which showed that the ride-hailing company's loss jumped 61% in 2017. The company lost $4.5 billion last year, up from $2.8 billion in 2016, according to figures first reported by the information and confirmed by CNBC on Tuesday. However, in the fourth quarter, which was CEO Dara Khosrowshahi's first full period at the helm, Uber's loss narrowed to $1.1 billion from $1.46 billion in the third quarter. Gross revenue during that period climbed about 14% to $11.1 billion from $9 billion. Uber ended the year with about $6 billion in cash, 13% below the prior year's total, according to Bloomberg. Uber is not required to publicly report its financial results, but has begun disclosing some figures in recent months. And another one here from a financial website, crunchbase.com. From October 2018, <laughs> understanding why Uber loses money. Uber is a huge company. Coming from nowhere, it's helped rip up and rewrite the rules for intra-city transit. The company, along with Lyft in the United States, have written themselves and their ride-sharing business model into culture. But while Uber is famous for huge growth, towering revenues and enormous fundraising, something that most don't know is that Uber loses money. A lot of it. So much, in fact, that its IPO timing is a question mark, its eventual valuation a mystery, and there have been nagging concerns throughout Uber's recent life as to whether it can ever make money. Or if it can while supporting its more exotic operations, Uber Eats loses money, self-driving cars are not cheap, and watch this about helicopters. So today we're going to explain how Uber loses money. After all, the company is famous for being asset light. By that we mean that Uber's non-employee drivers own their cars and pay for their own gas and cover most insurance costs. If Uber is not operating a huge fleet of cars, if Uber is not operating a huge fleet of cars, how can it possibly lose money? Let's find out. Losses. Today we're looking at Uber's second quarter 2018 numbers. If you want to follow along at home, we're leaning on this compilation of Uber figures put together by the Wall Street Journal. Links to a compilation of figures. Why focus on the company's second quarter? Because we have yet to see Uber's third quarter figures and the company's first quarter was impacted by one-time corporate divestments. More simply, the money that Uber got for divesting certain operations makes its first quarter look better than it was. So for the second quarter, how much money did Uber lose? Let's find out. And then it gives a few figures, several hundred million dollars that Uber's lost. In Uber's case, the stricter the profit metric, the more cost the profit metric takes into account, the worse it's quarterly lost. That makes sense. What you should take away from the above is that no matter which profit metric we decide on, be it net loss or adjusted EBITDA, Uber loses a pile of money each quarter. How? Now that we understand that Uber does lose money, you want to know how it manages the task. To understand, we'll start with fares and work our way through the company's costs. So up first, gross bookings, or the value of all rides on Uber's platform. In the second quarter of 2018, Uber's gross bookings totaled $12 billion. That's a lot of money. 
However, Uber does not get to keep most of it. In fact, a lot of things need to come out of gross bookings before we can figure out Uber's own revenue. The largest gross bookings cost is what Uber drivers make. In the second quarter, $8.2 billion of the $12 billion in bookings Uber poured in went to drivers. Uber also spent $142 million on promotions in the second quarter, paid drivers another $427 million in incentives, spent $27 million on refunds and paid $411 million in taxes and the like. All told, according to the Wall Street Journal chart, Uber's $12 billion of gross bookings included $9.2 billion in so-called contra revenue expenses. Now we can figure out Uber's real second quarter revenue. $12 billion gross bookings minus $9.2 billion contra revenue expenses equals $2.8 billion in net revenue for Uber. This is the money it takes in the door from which we'll deduct Uber's cost of revenue, what it costs to deliver product, its operating costs, salaries, office space, and other expenses to determine where all the money went. Recall that we are trying to understand why Uber loses money. There is no profit at the bottom of this well. So Uber has $2.8 billion in Q2 revenue to spend on itself. Its cost of revenue came to $1.3 billion, leaving $1.5 billion in gross profit for the company to use to pay for its operating costs. And there's a separate post that it links to for more information about income statements. Are Uber's operating costs greater than its gross profit? Here are the ride-sharing company's costs from its business operations. Sales and marketing, $734 million. General and administrative, $704 million. Research and development, $362 million. Operations and support, $344 million. And other operating costs, $97 million. And that's from the Wall Street Journal. So does that chart of costs sum to more than its gross profit of $1.5 billion? Yes. Uber's operating costs come to a total of $2.2 billion, and as Uber's costs are $700 million greater than its available gross profit, it loses money. In English, the money that Uber collects from fares is not enough to pay for its revenue and its operating costs. Therefore, Uber loses money each quarter. So how much money the company loses depends on how you count costs and if you take into account non-cash costs, such as stock compensation. But by every possible real profit metric, Uber is deeply unprofitable. And that's simply due to it having a higher cost base than it does revenue generating capacity. Now you know. So while the company is being kept afloat by funding from somewhere, with people saying Uber's great, you can order a ride on demand, you can get six people to ride, you can compare prices on the phone app, you can pay with the app, the app tells you a convenient place to meet the driver. Uber offer all these other services as well, and so on. The point is that taxi companies who don't offer those services, not least because they can't afford to invest in the technology, are used less than Uber, which does offer those services which does not have to make a profit so it can invest in all the technology it likes and invest in all the improvements it likes to make it a better company while other companies which do have to make a profit and thus can't compete are left for dust. Uber is all part of the agenda I've talked about before to bring an end to private travel and replace it with driverless cars. I talk about the driverless car agenda in episode 34. I've said before that Silicon Valley, whether it's Facebook, Google, Uber, whatever, they're all working to the same agenda. This is why Google have been involved with driverless cars, developing driverless cars. Uber drivers are complaining, but Uber doesn't care because the drivers are not the end. They're the means to an end. And that end is the end of drivers at all. Driverless cars are the future. 
according to the agenda anyway. High-speed rail travel is planned to be the main means of travel, but where cars are used, the agenda is that they are driverless cars, for reasons I explain in episode 34. Uber drivers who use their own vehicles as taxis are just part of the process of building the monopoly. When Uber has enough dominance, then the move to driverless Uber will start to appear. And it's easy to gain the dominance in the monopoly when you are destroying the competition because you don't have to make a profit because your funding is coming from somewhere. Uber is another Silicon Valley venture which appears to be about convenience when it's actually about control. And in the end, AI control because driverless cars are planned to be controlled just like everything else by artificial intelligence. It's not about people because society is agenda driven not people online broadcasting. And the final subject of part one this week is online broadcasting. This is in the Daily Mail. Chairman of the BBC warns that it is too tied up in red tape to compete with Netflix and other online rivals. Too much red tape is stopping the BBC from competing with on-demand rivals its chairman will warn today. So David Clementi is expected to say the broadcaster is no longer the big beast in the jungle and is under threat from online streaming giants such as Netflix and Amazon Prime. In a speech to the Oxford Media Convention, Sir David will call for an urgent debate on regulation of broadcasters to ensure the BBC remains fit for the global digital age. He will say the current regulatory system has its origins in an era where the BBC was seen as the big beast in the jungle. But that view of the world is now past. Increasingly, our major competitors are well-funded international giants. Netflix, Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, whose financial resources dwarf our own. The BBC wants to offer more box sets and make iPlayer programs available for more than 30 days where rivals offer them for at least three years. But it has to submit any plans to rigorous public interest tests, which Sir David will say takes months to process and means the BBC risks lagging even further behind audience needs. Well, it's only a short article, but it's worth talking about because the goal with these internet broadcasting giants has always been to gain a monopoly. I've talked in episode six about monopoly. Amazon started as a book publishing operation and now they sell virtually everything. Amazon's another company, Silicon Valley-like, Silicon Valley in spirit, or lack of it, that has had times when it's not been making a profit and losing money, but it still carries on. But there's more to it than profit. There's an agenda reason why these monopolies exist, which I talk about in episode 6. The reason for the monopoly is not just profit. Once the internet broadcasting giants secure a total monopoly, they decide what television is produced, and they call the shots content-wise. As soon as something is online, it's easier to control. The whole goal of the elite's agenda, this elite... I talk about the less than 1%. Their agenda is centralization of power, and this is another example. I've talked in episode 27 about how the social media giants in Google are censoring content, and it's the same with the broadcasting giants, in the sense that they are not outright censoring, but these monopolies and near monopolies are increasingly dictating what people see and hear. It's another step towards the point where all people see and hear is the official narrative, and the internet created from military technology would never have been made available to the public unless there was an agenda goal to be realized from allowing the public to use it and have access to it. DARPA, the technological development arm of the Pentagon, claims at least part credit for creating the internet along with CERN, the Center for European Nuclear Research in Switzerland, a very strange place with its Large Hadron Collider. I may 
cover CERN at some point in the future. Those two claim credit for creating the internet, or at least making a fundamental contribution. And if the internet was released originally as the internet that it was always planned to be, with all the censorship and monopoly and control and surveillance, then it would never have caught on in the way that it has. I talk in episode 27 about how Silicon Valley has the greatest level of censorship and surveillance power the world has ever seen. And that's just Silicon Valley. That encompasses Facebook, Google, Google and YouTube. Just in that one concentrated area in California, you have the greatest level of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen. Now, if the internet was released as it is increasingly becoming now and as it's planned to be, then, as I say, it would have not caught on in the way that it has, so it had to be released to the public on the basis that you could say what you like. But now we're seeing the efforts to censor more and more to create the internet that was always planned, where people only see and hear the official narrative on everything and nothing which challenges it. We see examples of broadcasting monopoly with sports coverage. BT Sport is swallowing up football coverage previously aired on terrestrial channels like FA Cup coverage. YouTube is streaming football European Cup finals, the Europa League and the Champions League for free. These internet broadcaster monopoly giants, once they've gained popularity, the more monopoly they can gain even quicker because they can then start winning the big money contracts for sports broadcasting and other content. And thus, the more production companies and content creators want to broadcast and stream on these platforms because ever more people are watching content on these platforms, which means the platforms make even more money. And so it becomes a feedback loop, a runaway train of monopoly. Another part of building this monopoly is ensuring, at least at first in the process of building the monopoly, that these monopoly giants escape regulation. That platforms like the BBC, as Sir David Clementi talks about in this article, have to abide by. And this is especially true of Silicon Valley, with Zionism's connection to Silicon Valley and its connection to the intelligence network. I talk about Zionism in episode 10, 28 and 34, as well as other episodes. These giants escape regulation, because if the plan is for them to gain the monopoly and control planned, then they have to escape regulation. The whole goal is centralization of content and decision making, because the whole goal of the elite's agenda is centralization of global power into the hands of ever fewer people, thus allowing for greater control over ever more people. And that's why knowing the agenda is so vital to avoiding that outcome. And that's what pay-per-view is all about. Just before the end of the episode, if you want to leave a comment or ask a question, feel free to email me at paperpodcastoutlook.com or tweet or message me on Facebook at pay-per-viewcast. So that's it for part one. There's plenty more to come in part two.